In the power of Christ we stand. Oh, that we would see the power of Christ on full display in his word as we read it, as we study it, as we hear it preached, as we meditate on it, we are staring at the power of our Savior. There's really no better place to turn than John 6 to see God's power on display. Jesus Christ has just fed over 20,000 people with two fish and five loaves of barley bread, those five crackers, power on display. And then, if that weren't enough, he's going to walk on water and show us power on display. He's going to show this only to his disciples, but we get to see it. We get to eavesdrop. We get to um, zoom in to see something that was meant only for the disciples, but now we get to partake of the power of Jesus. Jesus is our sovereign God. In chapter 5, as we've been studying the Gospel of John... In chapter 5, we saw six different ways in which Jesus is equal to God. He's equal to God in his very nature, in his works, in his power, in his authority, in the worship that is due to his name, and in the truth of the words that he speaks. Jesus is equal to God. He is God, very God. Many people did not believe that. Many people still do not believe that. And so Jesus brought in the confirmation of witnesses. The Father gave the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the miracles, and the witness of the scriptures themselves. And the blessing that we have this morning, the privilege we have, is being able to partake of that third witness. The greatest witness. John was great. The miracles were greater. But the scriptures are the greatest testimony to the power and the deity of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 6 is where we are. We studied last week the feeding of the 5,000, which is really technically the feeding of the 20,000, or somewhere about that. And John 6 is a very long chapter. The feeding of the 5,000 fits itself into a very long chapter, a very big chapter. And this chapter, as we said last week, is a very pivotal chapter in this gospel. We enter this chapter with crowds following Jesus, clamoring to get to him. We leave this chapter with only 11 people following Jesus. Jesus' ministry will never be the same after this chapter. Uh, Jesus enters this chapter in the 18th month of his great Galilean ministry to public crowds, miracles for everyone to see, teaching and preaching for all to hear. He's going to leave this chapter, exiting the, the great Galilean public ministry and entering into his private ministry, trying to get away from the crowds, trying to only be alone with his disciples. This section is familiar, and yet we, we must read it as if we're hearing it for the first time, as if we're studying it for the first time. This whole chapter is about bread. If you were to put one word over this whole chapter, it's bread. Uh, we just keep seeing bread, bread, living bread, bread given, bread, just the theme of bread is throughout this whole chapter. So why does this section that we're going to study this morning fit in this book, in this book, in this chapter, Jesus is going to walk on water. What does that have to do with bread? What does that have to do with the living bread? What does that have to do with the feeding the 5,000? Why is this section here? Is John just saying, and Jesus did another miracle? I don't think so. I think John is going to connect a lot to the issue of the feeding the 5,000. And then coming up, the issue of the I am statement. I am the bread of life, the living bread that we must eat from him or else we will perish. So let's read these together. Let's start in John chapter 6, these verses, John 6, 15. And for the sake of time, we will just read 15 through 21. So John 6, verse 15. So Jesus, 
perceiving that they were intending to come and to take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. And they were frightened. They were terrified. But Jesus said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Stop being afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Father, what rich verses. God, elongate our time and enrich our time so that we can dive as deeply as we can into this passage. Oh, how familiar we are. Oh, how often we've heard this story and we think we know the meaning of it. But God, I just pray that you give us new ears to hear. Open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law. May we be changed and transformed because of what we see this morning. So Spirit, come do the work that you love to do. You love to illuminate the word that you wrote. And you love to stare, to help us stare at Jesus, to put the spotlight on Jesus. So Spirit, do that. Give us a clear picture of Jesus this morning so that we would walk away worshiping him as the disciples did. We pray it in his name. Amen. This section of scripture, uh, first of all, this chapter follows the exact same outline of chapter 5. If you remember, the pattern in chapter 5 was a miracle. Uh, Jesus performed a miracle on the Sabbath. Um, people said, how can that be done? That the Pharisees get all up in arms, so then Jesus uh, teaches. There's a long discourse about the deity of Jesus. That's number two. And then finally, there is a rejection by the crowds, by the people, of who Jesus claims to be. So there's a miracle, there's a discourse on the deity of Jesus by Jesus, and then there is a rejection of him. John 6 follows the exact same pattern. The whole chapter is a miracle, and there's going to be two miracles, but the crowds only see one. A miracle, a discourse about who Jesus is, the deity of Jesus, and then uh, a rejection, a full-scale rejection by all the crowds um, to leave him and say, we don't want to follow you. Uh, last week, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. We saw many implications from it, but we outlined it by saying the setting for the miracle, the miracle itself, and the purpose of the miracle. I believe we can do the exact same thing to this passage. We're going to look at the setting of this miracle, the walking on water. We're going to look at the miracle itself, and then we're going to look at the purpose of the miracle. And we're going to spend most of our time looking at the purpose of this miracle. So the setting, number one, point number one, the setting. This is verses 15 through 18. The setting comes in the Gospel of John, uh, in chapter 6, with Jesus leaving the crowds because they were intending to come and to take him by force to make him king. Now, he is a king, but he is not the king that they think he is. They are wanting to use him. And in John chapter 6, we are already beginning to see the the point of this chapter, uh, the, the different picture of false disciples and true disciples. We're going to see true followers and false followers of Jesus. We already saw in the beginning of chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000, we saw really four characteristics of false disciples of Jesus. A false disciple, number one, is attracted because of crowds. They just get stirred up because of crowds. There's a big crowd. They're all hyped up about something. I'm joining that. And false disciples love crowds to gather together and follow someone. Sometimes if you turn on the television and you, you see these 
TV preachers and you just think, how are their churches so massive um, when they're not even preaching the gospel? It's because false disciples are attracted by crowds. They're not attracted by the word of God. They're not attracted by the worship of God. They're just attracted because, hey, that guy's popular. You think he's awesome. I'm going to join in that crusade as well. Number two, false disciples are fascinated by the supernatural. They're fascinated by the supernatural. This kind of goes hand in hand with the first one. A lot of crowds will gather around somebody who claims to do miracles. These crowds in John chapter 6 love Jesus because he does miracles. He's a great magician. They love the supernatural. But they're not fascinated by Jesus being God. They're just fascinated by what he can do. And specifically the fact that what he can do can be used by them for their good. That's really kind of point number three. Point number three, false disciples think only of earthly benefits. They only think about what can God do for me? What can he temporally give me? Earthly benefits. And if that's what false preachers offer them, they'll stay. That's why if Jesus is going to say here, you can't have me for the reasons why you think you want me. You must take me the way that I tell you to take me. And they're going to say, we don't want you. And lastly, we just saw that false disciples have no desire to worship Jesus alone for who he is. They want to use God. The whole setting of the feeding of the 5,000 is this crowd saying very clearly, you are useful to us. We will be your master and you will be our slave. You will be our butler. And when we ring our bell, Jesus, we need bread. Jesus, we need wine. Jesus, we need whatever. We're going to take you and you're going to be useful. And Jesus says, I'm not useful to anybody. I am king. I am Lord. And you need to take me as God and God alone. So that's the whole setting in chapter 6. But specifically, as Jesus withdraws by himself to the mountain alone, he's doing that to pray. Um, feeding the 5,000 in all of the Gospels. It's the only miracle that's recorded other than the resurrection in all four Gospels. The walking on water, Jesus walking on water, is recorded in John, in Matthew, and in Mark. So if you go to Matthew 14, you go to Mark 6, you see parallel accounts, and they help us fill out this account, fill out what's happening here. Uh, Matthew and, and Mark tell us that Jesus is going away onto the mountain to be by himself for the purpose of praying, and Mark tells us, Mark chapter 6, verse 45, tells us that Jesus commands his disciples, the word is very strong, compels them to get into a boat and leave, specifically to go over to Bethsaida. So he says, get into a boat, leave, go over to Bethsaida. Everybody's trying to take him to be king, and he says, I want you to get out of here, and I want you to go over to Bethsaida, get in your boat and leave. Why would he say that? Why would he command his disciples to do that? I think there's two reasons why. Number one, he knows exactly what's going to happen that night. He's planning this. He's setting this in motion. Just like John chapter 6, verse 6 says, where are we going to buy bread so that all these people can eat? This he was saying to test Philip because he knew what he was intending to do. Just as he knew what he was intending to do with the feeding of the 5,000, he knows exactly what he's about to do by walking on water that night. So he wants to get the disciples into a place where they're going to be caught up in a storm so that he can prove himself trustworthy yet again prove his deity yet again that's reason number one sovereign control of jesus to push them into a, a situation and a setting that they're not going to like but will ultimately glorify him more than if they were not in that situation and then point number two or reason number two i should say I, I think very practically jesus does not want his disciples to get caught up into the frenzy of the crowds 
So he says, get out of here now. Don't linger with the crowds because they're going to say, oh, you disciples are super awesome. You're amazing. You get to be with him day and night, 24-7. This is amazing. We wish we were like you. And the disciples can start reading and believing their press clippings and thinking we're awesome and Jesus is a great magician. That's why we should follow him. So I honestly think that Jesus is probably saying, get out of here before they have sway over you. And I'm going to go to the mountain. We don't know what he's praying for, but I bet one of the things he's praying for is God, Father, Keep my disciples from believing what the crowds believe. Uh, Kind of a a foreshadowing of what he's going to pray in John chapter 17 with the high priestly prayer. Please, God, keep them. Secure them. Don't let them fall into the trap of false disciples. So he goes away to pray. Verse 16, it's evening. His disciples are in the sea, in the boat. Verse 17, they're crossing the sea. And they're going to go to Capernaum. Now, Bethsaida is where Jesus told them to go to. They probably made a stop at Bethsaida because Bethsaida is between where they are and where they're getting to in Capernaum. But it says in the middle of verse 17, it had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So I think they're in a boat. They're waiting at Bethsaida. And somebody, let's probably just say it's Peter, says, Jesus probably already went to Capernaum. He's not here. He told told us to stay here at Bethsaida and he was going to show up here. But he's not here. He probably just made his way over to Capernaum. It's dark. He's probably sleeping already. And we'll just go there too. So they go back to their headquarters in Capernaum. That's the the setting for this passage. But verse 18 will give us the, the climax of the setting. They're on this sea. And you know there's a strong wind that begins to blow. And a storm comes in. Sea of Galilee is the second lowest sea or lake on the face of the earth, the first being the Dead Sea. It's about 700 feet below sea level, and there are mountains, huge mountains on three sides of the sea. Um, the, The Sea of Galilee itself is really like an oasis. It's a beautiful, beautiful area. Um, Nice and warm, beautiful climate. And so 700 feet down... Uh, the, the winds from all of these mountain ranges that are way, way higher than 700 feet um, plunge into this cauldron in this little valley and the warm air from the lake and the freezing cold air from the snow-capped mountains mixes up and just creates chaos. I've been in the Sea of Galilee three times now and every time I go there, there's something like this happening. Not a crazy storm, but something like this going on where winds just kick up and then stop. And even as we studied in Family Bible Hour, when a a huge storm happens, the disciples aren't saying, well, this is really strange. They're saying, well, this is normal. The Sea of Galilee is a very turbulent place to be as far as not knowing when a storm could hit. It is a little sea. It's a little lake. It's 13 miles high by 8 miles wide. Um, That's a beautiful place, but it can be a very dangerous place. And the disciples are feeling it. They're stuck in the middle. Um, Mark chapter 6, verses 47 through 48 tells us they were stuck in the middle of the lake. They're rowing around trying to get out, but they're stuck. The winds are forcing them to stay there. And the winds are forcing waves to go over into their boat and to create chaos. Uh, I was out on a deep sea fishing trip one time. I was a lot younger, and it started to rain, and I thought in my very immature naivete, 
rain's going to sink our ship because uh, we're in a boat, the rain's coming down, and it's going to fill our boat up, and we're all going to die. And I remember talking to uh, one of the guys that came on this. It was like a big men's trip from church. And I said, um, just in as much courage as I could muster, um, are we going to die? Uh, and he just in a very nice, very um, now, now, you know, you're okay kind of a way, said, no, wind, or rain is totally fine because the water's going to go in. It's going to get um, put out of the boat. We're fine. Now, if it was windy, he said, that's a different issue. I still don't know why he said that because the rain stopped and I went, we're alive. This is great. And then the wind started and I went, now we're going to die. Um, so I don't know why he said that, but but what he said is, it's wind that you need to be afraid of in a boat because wind picks up the waves, the waves move. It's not the rain you need to be scared of. The disciples knew this. So when we see wind blowing, we think, well, that's nothing, but this is deadly. This can sink your ship. This can kill you. That's the setting. The miracle itself, verse 19 through 21, the miracle itself. Point number two, the miracle. Then, verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles. So they're rowing. That's not probably a linear. Um, they're trying to stay close to the shore. They're trying to stay next to Bethsaida. And when they see that Jesus is not coming to Bethsaida, they're trying to go over to Capernaum. And then there's this storm, and it's pushing them into the middle of the sea. Again, Mark 6 tells us very clearly they were dead center in the middle. So they're trying to get through. They're trying to move around. But it's impossible for them to do so because the wind is coming from all sides, just smacking the boat right into the middle of the lake. And it says that Jesus begins to walk on the sea and draw near to the boat. In Mark 6, verse 48, it says that Jesus from the mountain is able to see this boat in the middle of the lake and it specifically says that Jesus is able to see them straining at the oars. That would be impossible to see during a storm, during something that is very dangerous, not to mention the time frame. Mark just tells us that it's evening. Matthew and, or John just tells us that it's evening. Matthew and Mark tell us that it's the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So it's pitch black. But Jesus in his sovereign power is able to see a little tiny boat. No, there's no lamps lit on this boat. There's no searchlight, spotlight shining. Jesus is able to identify where the boat is and see that his disciples are straining at the oars. He can see the oars in the boat. And so he goes to them. Very similar to the way that John describes the feeding of the 5,000. He just multiplies the bread, multiplies the fish, boom, that's it. It's very nonchalant. Does the same thing here. He just starts walking. This is not something that humans do, but he, he does it because he's God. He's outside of the realm of the, the mortal boundaries that we have as humans. So he's just walking. He draws near. End of verse 19. They are frightened. They're afraid. Um, Matthew 14, verse 26. The disciples actually think that it's a ghost. They think that they're seeing a ghost. Um, they're very terrified. The word for frightened is just beyond terrified. So he says, verse 20, It is I. Do not be afraid. Literally, stop your fear. Stop being afraid. There's no need to do it anymore. 
so, verse 21, they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Now, there's one glaring omission from this passage. John does not include something that uh, Matthew includes, and that is um, Peter walking on the water. You remember that section of Scripture? Um, we talked about it a little bit in Family Bible Hour this morning. I just think it's amazing. It's not a coincidence. It's God's sovereign planning. We were talking in Mark chapter 4 about the, the storm being stilled when Jesus is asleep in the boat. These are two separate issues, but they have similar reactions. In this uh, account, with Jesus walking on the water, Peter says, I think it's a ghost. And then he says, Lord, if it is you, permit me to come walk on the waves to you. Now, there's a lot inside of that question that, if you stop and you think about it, is a very weird question to ask. Um, If it is truly a ghost that they are seeing, if Peter is seeing a ghost and they're afraid of a ghost because ghosts want to kill you, then why would Peter say, "Uh, if it's you, Lord, let me come walk on the waves? Um, If it truly is a ghost, the ghost would say, sure, come on out on the waves. Let's come on out and you'll die if it is a ghost. So what I think Peter is doing is is something that shows us what's going on in their minds. I think that Peter and the disciples are saying, we're done for. Our ship's going down. And Peter says, one last effort here. Let's just give it a shot. If you are Jesus, maybe I can walk out of this and I won't die. All that to say, this is a horrific storm. And once again, just like Mark chapter 4, once again, they are even more afraid of Jesus than they are of the elements. They're more afraid of Jesus walking on the water and frightened of him than they were even of the storm. There's a lot of miracles. We're saying we're calling this point number two just the miracle. But there's a lot of miracles happening here. This is miracle after miracle after miracle. Miracle number one, they're still alive. That's a miracle. They should be dead. Miracle number two, Jesus is walking on water. That's impossible, but he can do it. Miracle number three, Peter walks on water too. Miracle number four, Peter's going to sink into the water and Jesus is going to pull him back up. Totally fine. Let's get back into the boat. Then Jesus is going to stop the wind. That's miracle number five. And Jesus is going to stop the water from crashing in the boat. And then finally, the boat is going to land where it was supposed to be docking to begin with. Look at that in verse 21. They're willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, one or two options with that. Either there's some form of miraculous teleportation happening, which totally could be. This could be miracle. But if you don't want to call it a miracle, if you, want to, if you want to stay as natural as possible, I don't think you have to. I think this is more than likely a miracle. But even if it's not, it still tells us something about walking with Jesus. They're in the midst of a storm. They're three to four miles out. They're in dead center in the middle of the lake. And once Jesus enters into their boat, immediately they they are where they need to be. Um, If this isn't a miracle, this is telling us that time passes quickly when you're holding Jesus' hand. Um, Even this life, we're going to be in heaven way way faster than we think we are. Uh, This life is a vapor. And even in the trials that you're going through, as you go through the storm, you're going to look back and think, man, that was immediate. I just got out of that and it was fine. Could be one of those two. 
So, they receive him. What's the purpose in all of this? As they receive him, uh, Matthew 14, 24 says they worship him, which is true discipleship. It's contrasting the false discipleship. They receive him in a way that the crowds did not at the beginning of chapter 6. So th- this is the miracle. that We've seen the setting. We've seen the miracle. The purpose. Why does John include this? What's the point of it? And how does it fit into the rest of this whole chapter that's just dealing with bread? I want to give you three reasons, three implications, why this passage is here, how it connects. And what we're going to do is we're going to zoom out. We're going to start big picture and we're going to zoom in progressively. Okay? We're going to see implications big picture from looking at this text in the whole of the Bible, and then we're going to zoom in. So, implication number one, purpose number one for why this section of Scripture is here. Remember, we, we talk a lot when we're studying the Bible, what would John think about what I think about what John thinks? If John were standing here, and he were listening to what I'm about to tell you, would he go, yep, that's why I wrote that? Or would he say, nope, you got that wrong? Um, you, you, you can... Try this yourself. You, you can test what I'm saying with that idea in mind. Does this fit the whole of Scripture and the whole of what John is trying to do, uh, specifically in John 6? Purpose number one. I think John writes this just to prove that Jesus is God. Pull all the way back. See the whole picture. No one can do this but God. Nobody can walk on the water and calm the sea but God. And ultimately, we know that that's the case because John's purpose statement in the Gospel of John as we have here on the banners, is to prove through these signs that Jesus is who he claims to be. So he is God. You can trust this man with your life. You must trust this man with your life. He is God, very God. I think that's purpose number one. Purpose number two, and we're going to linger a little bit here. I think John is trying to give us the implication yet again that Jesus must be worshipped for who he is not what you can use him for. Jesus must be worshipped for who he is and not what you can use him for. Remember, feeding the 5,000, the people wanted to use him. I want Jesus, and I I will follow him, and I will worship him as long as he gives me what I want. I'm going to use him. I think that John is going to put this section in in this chapter, not only because it's chronological, but I think he's going to do it because he wants to show us that the disciples received Jesus in a different way than the crowds did. Jesus must be worshipped for who he is, not what you can use him for. So Jesus is God, and then as you narrow down, and you must worship him as such. You cannot worship Jesus or follow him just to get what he has to offer. Again, this whole chapter is dealing with two groups of people, true disciples, false disciples. And I believe that they're contrasted in this passage. The false disciples wanted to make Jesus king, it's very interesting the way that Jesus um, speaks with and interacts with the false disciples and with the true disciples. The earlier section with the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is standing there and the crowds want him. They're seeking him aggressively and he leaves. With the walking on the water, the disciples, the true disciples, we don't really have evidence of them seeking him. They're just showing up at Bethsaida saying, Where is he? Come on, he's not here. Okay, we'll just go without him. We will go to Capernaum. He probably walked there. We'll head there without him. There's no aggressively seeking. But Jesus aggressively seeks them. He walks on the water to get to them. Um, Even the, the frenzy is still continuing in verses 22 through 25. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no 
other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus wasn't there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into small boats and came to Capernaum, aggressively seeking Jesus. He's not here. We want him. Let's go find him. And when they did find him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? They just want to be with Jesus. But there's a way to follow Jesus that is true. and There's a way to follow Jesus that is an incorrect, false following. We should, by the way, aggressively pursue Jesus the way that the false crowds did, but not with the same motive. We need to be pursuing Jesus. They're just, there's a frenzy. Find him, find him, find him. We should be following Jesus that way, but not at all for the same reasons that they did. But what's the contrast? What's the main contrast? Jesus must be worshipped for who he is, not what he has to offer. Not how you can use him to get what you want. Here's the main contrast. In verse 20, Jesus says, It is I, do not be afraid. Verse 21, So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And again, Matthew 14 says they worshipped him. This is crucial. The word receive, you should have ringing in your ears when you see that word. John chapter 1, Jesus came to his own, his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. These disciples are true disciples, receiving and worshiping him the right way, not receiving him the incorrect way. The other crowds wanted to receive him, but there's a different way that they receive him. There's a different way that they believe him. So... When we break it up, Jesus must be worshipped for who he is and not for how you can use him, for what you can use him for. Who is he? How should we we receive him? Um, What kind of reception is a worshipful reception versus a false reception? I think that there are two things happening in this passage, in John 6. Again, you test this. I, I don't want to take this too far, but you test this. Remember when the the false crowd said in verse 14, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. He's the prophet. Remember that's Deuteronomy 18. He's the prophet like Moses who's going to come. God promised this prophet is going to be like Moses, but better than Moses. So they're waiting for a, a prophet like Moses. Bring us that prophet. And they say, this is the prophet. They think he's like Moses. Why? Because he can offer them bread, like Moses offered manna. He can offer them water, like Moses struck the, the rock and gave them water. They're thinking, this guy's Moses. This is, this is a perfect picture of the prophet, just like Moses. We found him. We've got him. We're set. And I think what John is doing, subtly, but I think what he's doing in John 6 is showing us really the message of Hebrews. Jesus is infinitely better than Moses. What Moses did, Jesus does 10,000 times fold. Much, much better. Jesus, in this passage, in John 6 alone, is the true and better Moses, not just providing bread from heaven that satisfies for one day, but being bread sent from heaven that satisfies eternally. There's a comparison there, and Jesus is the true and better Moses in that way. He's the true and better Moses, not just making a way through the sea to be saved, but coming to you on the sea in the midst of the storm to save you himself. Jesus is the true and better Moses who didn't strike the rock, but became the rock for us to be struck by God in judgment so that we can drink of the living water forever. Jesus is the true and better Moses, 
In the words of John 1, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth have been realized through Jesus Christ. So the disciples, the false disciples say, we will receive you as a nice prophet, just like Moses. And Jesus says, no, I'm better than him. I'm the truer Moses. You can't follow me just like a normal human prophet. The second way that we must receive him, uh, as far as the who he is, and again, there's subtle clues here, there's subtle hints here. Remember feeding the 5,000? Timing of that. Immediately after that, the Passover is going to happen. And immediately before that, John the Baptist has been murdered. So John the Baptist is killed. Jesus is sorrowful. He walks away and he says, we're done with the public ministry. I need, to, I need to focus on the fact that I'm about to die. I think John's death, John the Baptist's death, uh, reminds Jesus, if you will. Uh, he knows he's going to die, but it reminds him that the end is coming and we need to focus on this. And then when he breaks the bread, he's going to say, uh, we'll get to this next week, he's going to say, unless you eat of my bread, unless you eat of me and drink of my blood, you have no part in the kingdom which he's going to say the exact same thing pretty much in the upper room with the Passover. This is my body broken for you, piece of bread. This is my blood poured out for you. You eat, you drink in remembrance of me. I think the feeding of the 5,000 has in it sacrificial elements pointing us to the coming crucifixion. But it doesn't end there because Jesus didn't die buried and stay dead. And here's the clue. What is the only other time in the New Testament when the disciples think that Jesus is a ghost. The only other time is at the resurrection, Luke 24. I think that Jesus is showing them, they're going to say, he's a ghost here, and then they're going to say, he's a ghost when he lives again. And both the reasons why they say that, it's not because he looks a certain way, he's not shimmering and shining or see-through, that's not why. Both reasons are, this man is defying the laws of nature. That's why they're saying he's a ghost. No one can do this. No mortal man can do this. He's defying the laws of nature. And I think in the walking on the water, he's defying the laws of nature in such a way that he's prefiguring. Just as he prefigured his death, he's prefiguring his resurrection in these two passages. And the disciples are ultimately going to get it. It's going to take them a long time, but they're ultimately going to get it. So we need to receive him, if you put those two points together. We need to receive him not as a a good man, Not as a a good prophet, but as God, very God. He's the true and better Moses. And we must believe everything that he said about himself and follow him for who he is. And we need to receive him as our bread. We need to receive him as our resurrection life. We need to receive him as our sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice in our place on the cross. That's who he is. What does he have to offer? What does he have to offer that potentially could be Um, skewed and misunderstood. We already saw this in Feeding the 5,000. The false disciples say, oh, he has bread to offer. Imagine a king who doesn't have to invent a tax system or a welfare system. If you're hungry, I'll just make you bread. This is a great king. We'll never go hungry. And so they say, you're useful to us. We'll use you. Bread's not in this issue, in this section with the walking on water, but there is something here that the disciples could have said, you're useful to us and we want to follow you because you're useful for us in this way, but they don't. So I want you to see there's a contrast here. And the contrast is in verse uh, 19 through 21. They row three or four miles. Jesus walks on the sea. 
They're frightened. He says, don't be afraid. They were willing to receive him, and immediately the boat is at the land to which they were going. I told you one glaring omission that you all know, an obvious omission, that's not in this passage, but is in Matthew and Mark, is Peter walking on the water. There's another omission here that John doesn't include, but Matthew and Mark include. And it's right in the middle of verse 21. When the disciples receive Jesus into the boat, Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus turns around and calms the storm. No mention of that here. Why? Why no mention of it? An easy explanation could be because this is written so much later. John, the gospel is written so much later that he knows that the New Testament church probably already knows this and read it. And that's true. But I think the spiritual implication of it is there's no need to mention the storm being stilled because if Jesus is in your boat, who cares if there's a storm? They're willing to receive Jesus not as a storm calmer. They're willing to receive Jesus as the Son of God, as Jesus himself. The crowds, the false crowds would have said, okay, you're useful to us because get in our boat and calm the storm so that we can live. The disciples say, we don't care about what you do with the storm. It doesn't matter if you calm it. It doesn't matter if it's gone or if it rages and we die. If you're in the boat with us, that's all we want. That's a huge contrast between what we saw with the feeding the 5,000. We just want the bread. You're useful to us. If there's anything that Jesus could have been useful for in this passage, it would have been calming the sea, saving their lives. But John doesn't include it. And I think he does that for a point, for a purpose. Obviously, we know the Holy Spirit writes every word, writes every letter that he does for a reason. The storm is stilled, immediately stops. John says, I'm not writing that down. Because if Jesus is in your boat, we're not going to say, oh, he's useful to me now because he can calm the sea. No, no, no. Worship him for who he is. Worship him for who he is. Maybe you're in difficult circumstances. Maybe you're going through trials, a season of a storm in your life. I think that Jesus would say through this passage, taste and see that the Lord is good. Eat of him, drink of him. And come to the reality where you can hold his hand and say, if you're with me, it doesn't matter what's going on around me. No circumstance is too great for me to be able to go through. I'm going to hold your hand, and if you're with me, I'm safe. I'm secure. So, worship Jesus for who he is, true and better Moses, our substitutionary sacrifice, and don't worship him for what he can give to you, useful to you, be, be useful in some way, shape, or form. Just He's the magic He's the magic word. He's the, the magic token that just calms everything. Even we studied that again with um, Mark chapter 4 and Family Bible Hour. Sometimes the disciples probably thought, like we do, well, if Jesus is in our boat sleeping, then nothing bad's going to happen because we've got Jesus on our side, like he's some lucky charm. That's not how we follow Jesus. That's not how we receive Jesus. And the disciples did not receive him that way. And that's why they worship him. We've got Jesus back. Not, now please get the storm, and then we'll worship you. It's huge. Point number three. The purpose of this account. Treasure Jesus and trust Jesus today. Treasure Jesus and trust Jesus today. I told you we're going to kind of zoom in. So we, big picture, whole book of John, whole book of the you know, whole Bible, Jesus is God, and follow him as such. Zoom in a little bit, see all of chapter 6. Uh, really kind of see the book of John still. 
Jesus is to be worshipped for who he is, not what he is useful for. But finally, let's zoom all the way in and let's connect these accounts. Bread, water. How does this work? John 6 is all about bread. And then we move to water. And there's no explanation. John 6, the beginning of John 6, feeding of the 5,000, is going to get a huge explanation. I mean, there's an enormous discourse in John 6 on why Jesus performed that miracle. It's a huge discourse. But Jesus is going to say one word about why he walked on water. Not one. Seems just like a throwaway. How does it connect? I don't believe that this miracle is just a standalone, yay, Jesus did something cool. I think it connects. And I think it serves the bread issue. What do wind and hunger have in common? What do wind and hunger have in common? If you have too much of either of them, you will die. If you have too much hunger, you will die. You will starve. If you have too much wind, you can die. And both of these issues, I believe, cause just the true disciples to struggle with fear. The disciples are afraid, and Jesus is going to calm their fears by his presence in the boat. The disciples give food to the crowds. Last week, they're giving out food, and it specifically says that they're giving out the food, and then they get to take a basket for themselves at the very, very end. But this is all big crowd, a bunch of food being handed out. It would be very easy for the disciples who have been working this entire time as well, saying, I'm hungry, I want to eat. And Jesus says, go pass out the food. But ultimately, he's going to say, now collect it all back up, sit down, you get an entire basket to yourself. I will provide. My presence will calm your fears in the boat. And as you wait and wait and wait and wait, I will be your satisfaction and provide your spiritual sustenance uh, through eating my my body, eating of my words, eating of who I am. These two miracles taken together obviously prove that Jesus is God. They prove that he's trustworthy. They prove that his presence is life to us, that he is to be valued and treasured above all things. Jesus doesn't perform a miracle and save them from far away on the mountain. He could have easily just said, from the mountaintop, be still, boom, come, come to me, boat. He could have done that, didn't do that. He gets in the boat with them. He joins them. The miracle in the walking on water is that Jesus himself is the miracle. Steps inside the boat. I'm with you. It's exactly what he's trying to say with the feeding of the 5,000. The miracle is not, here's bread to eat and I'm out of here. He's saying the bread is a picture to me. I satisfy you more than any temporal bread can. And from last week to connect it all together. The more that you satisfy others, the more that you pass out bread to others and sustain others through life-giving words, the more Jesus will be your satisfaction. So if I can just read the end of a commentary here, I think this will be helpful. What Jesus shows us today in these two miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water, is this. There is no ministry for Christ's sake and no storm in Christ's service where every need will not be supplied above all the need for Jesus himself. If you give of yourself, if you give of your time, of your talents and your treasures, and you risk storms in a way that magnifies Jesus as the one who creates bread and walks on water, you will do well. But listen to this carefully. So you risk storms and you will magnify Jesus as the one who creates bread and walks on water. Miracle worker. That's great. That will glorify Jesus. But even more, 
live in this generous, risk-taking way because he is bread for your soul and he gets in the boat with you. Don't just worship him because he offers you bread and he offers to calm your storms. Worship him because he is bread and he's in your boat. His presence is what we desire and that's why we need to treasure and trust him because he is always with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. To continue, Jesus is personally and exclusively showing his disciples this miracle. Nobody else sees this miracle. This is just for them. But when they are forced with staying with him or leaving at the very end, in John chapter 6, verse 66, all the crowds are going to leave. They're going to say, we've had enough of Jesus, we're out. And Jesus is going to look at his disciples and say, what about you? You guys want to leave too? And they're going to speak up and they're going to say this. We're staying with you. We don't, we don't want to leave. And we sing this song a lot. We don't want to leave. Where else would we go? And this is their answer. This is crucial. It's not, you're a great magician. You're a great miracle worker. Where else would we go? If we get into a storm and we don't have you, we're going to die. That's not what they say. They receive him as life. They receive him as living bread. They receive him as satisfaction. So they say, we need you. Where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You are the one that we need. Your words that testify to who you are and how we are to follow you, that's what we need. Not your miracles, not, not the magic that you can do that the crowds are so fascinated by. They just say, oh, this is amazing, he's a magician. No, he is God. He is God. The miracles point us to the fact that he is God. And the fact that he is God points us to the fact that we need to listen to him. So that's the setting, the miracle itself, and the purpose. And so my question to you, just like I asked last week, how are you following Jesus? Are you following Jesus because he's useful to you? Or are you following Jesus because he is your satisfaction? That's why I say point number three here, trust and treasure Jesus above all things. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time to be able to study it. And I do pray that you would be everything to us. You would be our vision. You would be our sustenance. You would be our trust. You would be our hope. You would be everything that we ever need because you are but we need to trust that and treasure you as that today. So God, please work in our hearts even now as we sing uh, to enable us to treasure you and nothing else, to enable us to trust you as the all-providing bread of life, that we don't need anything except for you. And if you're, you are in our boat, then we don't need the storms to be stilled. We have you. May we trust you even now as we sing. We pray it in your name. Amen.